This is Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer with Baptist Memorial Healthcare, and this is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. And hi, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, today we are so excited to have Dr. Eric Rideout from Intermountain Healthcare. Dr. Rideout, could you tell us a little bit about your background and your role there at Intermountain Healthcare? Yes, sir. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Eric Rideout here, neonatologist. Uh, blessed to serve the caregivers, babies, and families uh, in Southern Utah. Facility is called St. George Regional Hospital. We have a 24-bed newborn intensive care unit. Uh, I've been here for 13 years. Prior to that, I was active duty Army. Uh, spent 23 years serving uh, some of the most important people on Earth, soldiers and uh, their 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 loved ones. Uh, most of the time, I spent Triple Army Medical Center in Hawaii, and then I traveled the globe helping improve quality for uh, for the soldiers uh, and, and their loved ones uh, from a quality safety standpoint and trying to do everything possible to make it impossible for caregivers to fail and therefore harm to get to them, the organization, or those that defend freedom. Well, Dr. Rodout, uh, once again, thank you very much for being here and also thank you for your uh, for your service to our country. We, we certainly appreciate that. And um, Jake and I, Dr. Lancaster and I, we're, we're fairly new in our in our continuous improvement journey. And, you know, when we have physicians on the show, we, we kind of like to hear about your journey. How, how did you go from, you know, being a neonatologist to really getting, in, getting interested in quality and continuous improvement to, to where you are now? Sure. Um, I think er- early in my uh, career in recognizing the role systems play versus individuals play in those systems and um, the powerful sort of interplay and that um, the opportunity for systems to be designed, um, recognizing humans can fail, but the systems can be designed to not let our human failure reach through to either affect the fellow caregiver, the organization, or most importantly, patients. And in um, early in the career or early in my training, um, while on active duty, we are put in positions of authority very soon and start having accountability um, on, on a large scale very early in training. So as a, as a PGY-1, to start having covering the Pacific, taking referrals, and then start having trainees uh, and recognizing the importance of helping them understand decisions they're making and the downstream effects, not just the, the primary, but secondary, quaternary, tertiary effects of a decision as an example, a, a lab that's ordered, one, do we actually need it? How is it going to add value and, and promote the cause of wellness um, versus the data that's already available? And uh, absent that information, what what happens? And then worst case scenario, when you order that lab and the patient gets poked and experiences pain, blood costs, time material, time motion, um, what actually happens when you push, or back then it was right to order, but now when you order it in a computer, what actually occurs behind the scenes under the hood, what, what I call the background noise of care, and is it worth getting the, the number that you desire, um, and actually does the patient want you to know the number, or is it that you want to know the number, given that it's going to take three separate pokes, three microtainers, time and motion, cost reagent, landfill burden to get the number that actually you didn't need. And you historically have always gotten it, and that's why you continue to get it, and I call it TWIT, the way I train care. So care that happens to patients because we've always done it doesn't mean it's wrong, just needs to be questioned. 
So I've always had the mindset that you have to ask sort of the five whys of why are we getting this next thing or why is this patient going to experience this care? And um, is the care to the patient or is it for the patient? And so is it because I want it or is it because the baby girl wants to experience the bilirubin because we need to know it? Um, sort of thing. And so that that was sort of an early on thing. And whether that's the way I was raised or just the mindset I've always had is that the vast majority of care patients experience, I've always believed to be not necessarily value added and potentially harmful. And when we start questioning it and we start measuring it, we find that we can eliminate vast amounts of it and patients actually get better faster and go home sooner. And that was certainly our experience while I was on active duty, but in a massive way when I arrived in our, our newborn intensive care unit here, um, constructed this program that ultimately we call POKE, and it's really kind of a two-tiered thing. It's mostly about culture and empowering folks and leveraging the genius at the bedside, uh, and that's a function of culture and servant leadership and the shingle principles that now we, we know well, but we've been doing that for more than a decade. Um, and, and then tooling to basically surface the voice of the patient. So if I have a 500-gram little baby girl, I want her to have a voice and say, this is actually the care I'm experiencing. And so I developed a tool in FileMaker to do that. And then now we have the ability to surface that out of our EMR and, and say, when you order this, this is actually the care experience I had. And it turns out that all the pain I suffered or experienced to give you that number is actually worsening my outcome down the road. And there's more and more data demonstrating that. And so have a good reason for doing what you're doing. And it really needs to be care that's only going to advance the cause of wellness and will add value. So, you know, that you, know, you said a lot there and, and you went into I think the meat of what we want to talk about today, which is uh, Project Poke. Sure. Um, and so, you know, HF is general surgeon. I'm internal medicine. You know, we deal. We, we don't know much about kids, um, but I know and, and we all I have five of them and I still don't know a lot about <laughs> yeah, kids. Well, yeah. And the older they get, the less, you know, and the less advice you can give as a parent, for sure. <laughs> That's for sure. But we know that waste is a big issue in on, on the adult side specifically blood tests you know we order a lot of unnecessary blood tests uh, but can you tell the audience why it's even more important uh for for blood tests uh, for that that waste in, in the in the neonatal population the pediatric population because you know it, it's very hard on the the adult side we, we do that uh, twit care a lot where we order just because we have yeah, we want to see it. It's normal. Most, yeah. Tell well, us why it's more important on the on the kid side. Yeah. Well, the most common indication for labs is the sun's coming up, right? Not because the patient needs the the intervention to occur. Um, and, and no patient population is immune from experiencing care that doesn't add value, right? Um, so babies are born. Let's let's take the the typical preterm baby. Uh, their blood volume is somewhere around 80 to 100 per kilo, milliliters per kilogram. And so if we take a thousand gram baby, they're going to have somewhere on the order of, let's say, 80 mils, 80 milliliters. Uh, they are, we're expecting them to start growing once they've, they've gone through the typical postnatal diuresis where they dry out a little bit and then they start gaining weight, which occurs somewhere in the first seven to 10 days. Um, they're going to start growing one and a half percent per day. They're going to start out with a fixed red, red cell mass and volume, and they're going to start rapidly growing. After birth, the physiology is such that their bone marrow is suppressed and turned off from a variety of different reasons. And so if they come out, they're going to start going. They have a fixed red cell mass that's not going to expand for a while. And we start phlebotomizing it. They very rapidly get into uh, a position of anemia that has lots of downstream negative consequences and then obligates us to have to transfuse them. Now, it turns out that the dirty secret is that they get in that situation because we cause it. 
right? Now we have things we can do on the front end, sort of the idea of the townspeople getting together, talking about how to pull the kids out of the river and, and better ways to do that. And somebody says, why don't we just walk upstream and find out why they're falling in? This is, you know, shut the gate so they stop falling in. This is that whole idea of upstream determinants of, 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 of these types of things. And we found that one, at birth, we can have them stay connected to placenta a little bit longer. So they actually get some more of their blood that historically would have stayed in the placenta. Um, and there's actually improved outcomes from that. And we adopted that almost a decade ago. We take some of their initial labs that that do add value from a cost standpoint, maybe not from a blood standpoint um, on their side, off the placenta because it's their blood. And those are actionable and actually have improved sensitivity. And we then don't take that from them. And then we modify their microenvironment in such a way that very few of the things that we historically would have done, we continue to do in our NICU. And so one of the most classic and typical ones would be a small baby, 1,000 grams, that has very thin skin, and it could rapidly desiccate. Historically, we would have cared for them on a radiant warmer, so like a French fry warmer. Massive and sensible losses and frequent sodium checks to be able to guide free water management. That's what we had to do. That's what the baby would ask for. So that's the care for, not to. We then developed, not we, but folks developed a microenvironment, humidifier, humidi humidified microenvironment, 80% ambient humidity in an incubator where we effectively eliminate the insensible loss. We don't need to check the serum sodiums anymore because we've effectively eliminated it. We don't. Almost every other institution continues to check them because they historically always have. And so I always talk about twit care as sort of being like Newton's first law, that a, an object in motion will stay in motion until acted on by an external force or net force. The net force is the team empowered at the bedside saying, why are we checking it? We've now moved baby girl into the incubated, humidified environment effectively eliminated and sensible losses. We have strict ins and outs. We know what her free water status is. Therefore, we know what her sodium status is. Why are we validating it with the lab? We're actually gonna get a spurious result or maybe some other result where there was zero pretest probability for an abnormality. And then you go down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out what that is when you had zero suspicion for it in the first place. So um, when forced into the position because of phlebotomy to transfuse babies, it actually worsens their outcome in a lot of different respects because transfusion is a very morbid procedure. It can affect their gut can affect lung and cause injury that then results in longer stays and longer uh, longer care kind of thing and drives up the cost of care. In addition to, you know, needing transfusions, you know, it, that, that makes total sense because of that small amount of volume. But uh, is there also an increased risk of infection with uh, more frequent flu body in, in neonates? For sure. So and that data goes back years and years ago. Folks in Texas looked at that. Um, and and um, one of the things we looked at early on when we started doing this work and we recognized the drastic reductions in the number of pokes babies experienced. And so a poke is any clinical experience that has the potential to harm or fails to add value. Um, and we then broke them down and categorized them into painful, non-painful. So central line entries versus breaking the skin. Um, the, the more often you enter a central line or the more often you breach a barrier that was given to them at, at birth, the more likely we're gonna bypass a protective mechanism and, and iatrogenic harm and iatrogenic infection potentially happens. So we're, we're going on our 4,000 plus days without a CLABSI here, and we're never yeah. gonna have another one. And the idea is that the next one wants to happen tomorrow, but we're so preoccupied with failure, we're not gonna let it happen because we are so judicious and um, thoughtful about when we enter the line or when a baby experiences a heel stick, a poke, uh, an art line draw, if they have one of those, um, to have justified it in such a massive way, leveraging the entire genius of the team to come up with the best recommendation for when that baby's going to experience a lab, phlebotomy, et cetera, that we've driven down the number of times babies experience that. So just had a little baby who day, day six sent home yesterday, 
delivered and bo was born on um, on Thanksgiving Day. Hypoxic uh, respiratory failure, so wicked pulmonary hypertension, had free air on one side. We ended up innovating, given surfactant, opening the lung, optimizing VQ, and, and did this with very little phlebotomy, watching and using all the other tools we have, which are non-invasive, that give us exactly inf same information. And um, that baby's gone home now on day six. Other institutions probably would still have that baby innovated because they have a sickness mindset versus a wellness mindset. And you can cause sickness to happen by continuing to check and demonstrating they're sick because they'll eventually become sick. Wow, that that's that's great. Um, I've I've been I read a little bit about about your uh, your poke pro program, but tell us a little bit about the process of implementing this. I know you you guys just didn't say okay one day we're going to do this, and I know you, you you talk about you know collecting a ton of data. And then, and then, but the the thing I wanted to talk about is you had to convince the the providers and everybody that if you're not providing value for the patient, you're actually doing harm. Mm -hmm. And and uh, you know that's that's kind of hard for us to wrap our heads around. How how did you guys go about changing that culture? Right. Well, it, it started just with, with the very first conversation on rounds, um, and and it really is coming from a position of humility. And um, so there's two definitions for poke that help kind of inform the discussion. So the first is poke as a verb, and that's any clinical experience and always from the patient's perspective that has the potential to harm them or fails to add value. And then poke the noun is a team-based, patient-centered care ecosystem where all are empowered, all, baby, parents, every caregiver. We flatten the hierarchy. Everybody has a voice where everybody's going to contribute, where they're going to experience deep respect relentlessly eliminate waste and help patients, their, their families, caregivers, all feel valued, safe, and loved. And we talk about, we use those words, we use love, we use safe, we use value. My job every day is to show up and seek to serve those that are actually doing the work, which are the, the nurses, the families at the bedside. Now, I, I, I'm there as well doing care and doing interventions and stuff, but my role primarily is to serve those and to unleash the genius that exists at the bedside. And so that started with the very first conversation, room seven at our old campus, baby that had just been extubated from um, intubated to, to nasal CPAP on room air and was going to get a, quote, post-extubation blood gas because we'd always done them. And I challenged it and said, why? Well, because we always do it. Well, why? Well, the CO2 could be up. I, so I drew the picture of the alveolar air equation, went back to science because you can always use that unless we're in a different universe with different principles and gas laws and said, it, with the oximeter on there and fetal and fetal hemoglobin or even adult hemoglobin, the CO2 can't be higher than 50 something and the baby's on room air. What would be the trigger to reintubate? Because that's what you're checking a CO2 to trigger reintubation. The baby's breathing comfortably on room air. Well, and, and eventually you get to where there's no answer other than, well, we've always done it. That's twit. And it wasn't done. And, and done in a thoughtful way, that conversation resulted in that care not happening, that baby not experiencing a poke that didn't add value and a conversation with the team and eventually the flywheel and you think about the good to great built to last sort of you know mentality you know from um the folks in boulder in, in um the, the work that they've done john collins and everybody pushing on that flywheel which is impossibly large the moment of inertia and eventually it starts going it's going to continue to fly after i leave here and the mindset and the dna of everybody's been changed just down the hall here in the NICU to have this mindset of 
when every decision we make is going to be filtered through, does it add value or not? And how can we eliminate what's not going to add value? And so it starts with the one conversation and me as a quote leader by virtue of title, which you start as a level one. I use Jim, Jim Maxwell's, you know, a level one, level two, up through level five. Level one, title only, people follow me because they have to. Then they start following me because of what I've done for the organization. Then they start following me because of how they feel. And then they start following because I'm growing them as leaders. And then eventually you hope to become a pinnacle leader, but hopefully I'm a level four at, at a minimum. And where every one of those folks and there's a leader by virtue of influence, nothing more, nothing less. And every person shows up every day seeking to serve each other. There's nobody here that looks as a patient as my patient versus yours. Every baby in there enjoys the benefit of every person in there thinking what's going to be best for them and the caregivers. And so that first conversation, and then what I recognized quickly was we need data to, to surface and empower folks with the voice of the patient, because you have that little one in there. And again, if I order something, I'm not necessarily understanding that all the steps behind the scenes and what that patient experiences, but the nurse knows that. And so I initially started on paper, then I programmed a FileMaker database, uh, and I, I built a tool on the front end that helped them with an acuity-based staffing model. So that was the carrot. To, to be able to have them sit down and spend just a second double documenting the care because we had a hybrid model where they documented on paper and then they would sit down on the database and they would document faithfully every intervention that baby experienced and initially that sounds like a lot of work it took them a few minutes and that and then effectively went down to zero because we recognized almost all the care babies were experiencing was waste and 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 i have all the data from every single baby up to present uh, and we had babies that historically would experience thousands of pokes during their stay, hundreds of painful ones, to now where they experience no more than 60 or 70 total and rarely more than 20 painful. Data from Canada back in 2014 demonstrated babies less than 32 weeks experiencing more than 72 painful pokes had worsened outcomes measurable on MRI and at seven to eight years of age. Pain is bad for the developing brain. And so I look at babies as being budgeted with, for a certain amount of things they can tolerate. We never want to blow past that budget. Most places blow past it in the first few days. We don't get close to it in an entire stay. Because of the entire team being powered to think this way, does the baby need it or not? And really, is the baby asking for the care? And if they're not, we don't do it. So, so you collected data, you had some initial first grade conversations, mm -hmm. and then, but at a certain point you had to convince your colleagues, other neonatologists mm -hmm. uh, to follow suit and, and not order these, these blood draws. Can you talk about how how that process went, the the interface, and and how you maybe how you use your data to to convince them to to move into the thread. Yeah, so I think one of the the powerful tools is um, is the huddle process, where huddling each day, getting the entire team on the same page, and using recognition, talking about safety related issues, and and basically celebrating each one of these as a win. And so what we did early on is we is we collected baseline data, and then as we started our our sort of looking towards our north star, where Babies effectively experience zero pokes, which you know is not a possibility, but it's still an aspirational goal. And we looked at our current state and then we iterated towards perfection. As the iteration process, one of the, the valuable things was um, every member of the team leaning into this and then celebrating when a baby didn't experience a poke that they historically would have, and then disseminating that broadly. So everybody got that little dopamine hit of the of the victory. And then my, my peers, colleagues got to share in that and then they wanted to be part of it. Hmm. And, and um, in some regards, or um, one of, of our um, team members struggled with one being able to subjugate ego from a from a physician to you know standpoint kind of thing, and not not seeing the team as serving that individual, but going the other direction, and the value that occurred um, as they made that transition. 
Um, and it's just that physicians are programmed to think that way. And um, and that starts pre-med, actually. And there's data to demonstrate that the physicians are programmed to have that ego and think that they're different um, when and, and not that they're showing up to serve, but they're showing up to be served and really moving that around. And that took time and effort, but we invested in that individual to do that. That was separate work from the, on the side, from a leadership coaching, mentoring standpoint to get get that individual to understand that and the value and the, the feedback that came from the team to that individual with us doing that on the side basically caused that to be an almost autotelic thing where it was self-rewarding and then that has never changed. Um, and and it's, it's really that the entire team celebrating the victory of a baby not experiencing a poke, everybody wants to be part of that. And you go from not doing improvement work to starting to do it and the work, and then you get to the future state to where if you're not making something better today, folks are antsy and they're wanting to know why we're not fixing something. Mm-hmm. And and that, that's that transition that occurs and that becomes contagious and everybody wants to be a part of it. And and even to this day, we still find opportunities where, you know what, we can have this pre-hung and because we've ordered something different and that can be done down in the laminar flow of the, la, uh, of the pharmacy and that gets rid of one poke. It's like, okay, one, that's 50%. Of the, of the total daily pokes today. So that baby's gonna experience one central line entry versus two, you know, um, and all of our, the physicians and our nurse practitioners all rapidly saw the value of this. And there was very little pushback um, other than that, that leadership and recognizing the flattened hierarchy and seeking to serve versus be served. And that just is a mindset thing that was separate from the actual decisions at the bedside. And as that occurred, those decisions became even easier. It's so fun to show up and just let the team flourish, have psychological safety, just be the sort of the, the, the touchstone kind of thing of what goes on. And I, my job's easy. They do all the work. And babies just happen to be the, 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 the byproduct of the work we do is one family. But folks go home knowing their opinion matters. And we have the data to show that from Gallup and Press Ganey, insanely high engagement scores for our team in the high 4.678s kind of thing compared to national average, much lower. Um, we have almost no turnover because people want to come here and never leave because they feel so valued. Uh, and they know we're doing the right thing and the baby's only experience value. And so the, the, the nurse leader and myself, our goal has always been provide an environment where our team can only be successful and the babies are going to passively benefit. We rarely talk about the care of the baby. It's always about the love of the team. And in any time the team almost failed or there almost was an issue or they would send something, we would see that as a, a failure on our part from a leader standpoint that we almost let them become second victims and, and then uh, and work to, um, to basically not have any Swiss cheese, only have cheddar cheese in all the system. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Eric, um, Unfortunately, a lot of the things that we do in medicine is driven by finances, but but this sounds like that you guys truly had a project where you were focusing on care and treatment of the patient and providing that quality care, that value-added care, but you guys ended up saving 28%. Of your, of your cost in the NICU, and, and, and it's almost like that was a byproduct, and, and I think that's that's one of the things that that it's hard for us to understand that if if we truly focus on that that the the finances will follow it. It, it, it and it looks like it certainly looks like that's been y'all's experience at Intermountain. Yeah, well, definitely in our newborn intensive care unit, the work we started was simply eliminate care that wasn't adding value, and the babies were experiencing pain that we couldn't justify. And, and as we did that work, the passive byproduct of safer care oftentimes is less expensive care, shortened length of stays, and improved outcomes. That's, that's quality, right, and value. Uh, it wasn't until four or five years into this journey working with Brent James, because I 
met met him early on. One of the reasons I came as I left active duty came here was because Brent was here and we quickly struck up a friendship. I adore the guy. He's awesome. And I, I would send, hey, just pulled new data. This is what's going on. And never about the money. It was about look at these massive reductions and babies going home sooner and shortening things. And and, you know, now we're a month, now we're two months, now we're six months. Now it's been a year since our collapse and now and we're never going to have another. And he invited me to present at the High Value Healthcare Collaborative. And this has been a long time ago. And he said, they're going to want to see some dollars because they look at you know dollars type things. And so I had the analysts pull the data and they were blown away on just a handful of things that I sent to them, um, the reductions that babies enjoyed and the, and the, the dollar impact from our side, not having to provide the care because there's expense in providing a service. And then what we didn't charge society, the payers, the families. And the Delta obviously is margin. So it hurt our margin. So in a fee-for-service model, this type of work is going to scare people unless you go out and work with the payers and like Brent James and Greg Polson in Harvard Business Review back in 2014 or 16 in the summer, the case for capitation is the paper, beautiful paper where they talk about doing this work, but you do it at your own peril If it, on the finance side if you don't do the work where you say there's going to be shared benefit. As an example, if you say, okay, the typical 28-week baby is a $60,000 proposition at baseline, you go out and you meet with the payers and say, we anticipate being able to drive this cost down by being thoughtful and eliminating care that doesn't add value. If there are savings, we need to share it so we can keep the lights on. Now, we didn't do that because we just organically started because I, w- I was empowered simply by virtue of, hey, we hired you to provide extraordinary care in all its dimensions. And I saw my charge as loving the people and making sure the babies never experienced care that didn't add value just happened to save a lot of money. Um, at our small level, that didn't bother people. And we had a leader, Terry Kane, um, was a CEO who was a ex-NICU nurse, and she was all about it. And she championed it all the way till she retired recently. We then took this across the system and it did scare them because the, the dollar uh, amount was was huge. On the front end, about $1.3 million um, saved on 150,000 pokes eliminated. So this was dollars budgeted, care that didn't happen, and dollars that we still had that we didn't have to spend. On the back end, the two ways they look at it, fee-for-service and fee-for-value, the number was large. I'm not privy to what that number was, but Mark Harrison, the CEO, um, in an interview with New England Journal, and I can send you the reference, or you can just search Mark Harrison and Pope, and he suggested across our system the number would be north of $50 million on net revenue impact. So there's tremendous waste that can be eliminated, it, but you have to have the, the heart, soul, will, desire to do the work. And um, it's it's a scary thing absent doing that work with the payers. And, you know, so it sounds like it's been very successful at, at your system and across the system. Um, but let's talk, talk a little bit about spread. You mentioned that most yeah. hospitals are not doing this. I, I did see from the, the link that uh, was shared before um, that a few are. I was actually surprised to see UAB was was oh, on yeah. there. Oh yeah, I've got a great partnership with them. Yeah, and I, I was you know on the adult side, but I, I knew MedPeds residents, and I knew that they were not allowed to order a lab test without getting the attendings approval, and we thought that was we thought that was crazy. Um, but I, can you tell us a little bit about why it has not spread further, or or what is the resistance, and, and you know why hasn't it spread to the adult side of things even? Well. Um, I don't have the data to prove this, but I believe, well, we we know folks don't like to change. Uh, Folks will always challenge your data and not want to believe it if it doesn't validate their assumptions. Um, That even as part of the process of spreading this throughout Intermountain, I had to go kind of sideways and go through a process called the foundry where I had to go and, and basically pitch the idea versus just have it organically spread. Pitch the idea to the innovations and development folks 
to get funding that they had as a separate pot of dollars to build the tool to pull the data out of our EMR versus use the tool I developed and also then to have it implemented in each of the NICUs. Now, Mark Harrison, the CEO, instead of going to one, said go to all NICUs because this totally makes sense to him. We got about $250,000 to, to build the tool to, to pull the data out. And now that's that's actually becoming a standalone company called Sevilla Digital Health that does a host of other things with stroke and sepsis and some other cool sort of secondary tertiary benefits. Um, but, but instead of it being a pull, it was a push um, in terms of how this was spread internally, which is where we got some of the resistance. Um, but in, in the work I did with internally, but as being the poll going outside the system, Brent James and the, by virtue of presenting in some of his conferences, that's where I met the, uh, Scott Buckhalter and was invited to UAB. And I've had this partnership with them for going on seven or eight years, twice a year with their Quality Academy. And they, they get the right people in those seats for those trainings, doing meaningful things, and they're empowered, and they're, all the levers align with key process, you know, KPIs, et cetera. And poke has been something they've embraced to, in some degrees, not wholesale from a culture standpoint, but in terms of the measurement of, of waste and care that doesn't add value. And they've, they've had it, used it to great effect in, in different parts of the care. Um, I've worked, collaborated with the folks at Stanford, and they've done some implementations there uh, at um, – uh, just went to work with Bronson uh, um, up in uh, Kalamazoo. They were having issues with collapse and a host of other things in their NICU and uh, going up and doing that work with them. And they now have, they're going months and months without collapse. Folks are talking, they, they, they identified opportunities using the huddle, using uh, SBAR as a communication tool and leveraging that genius through the critical thinking component of assessment. Um, and so really the, my mission is to to get pulled places and go to add value, evangelize this type of work, and then coach them and have them do the meaningful work and identify what what points they want to work on and and identify the nurse champions and the physician champions and then coach them up, basically using continuous improvement principles to do the work. Um, it, you know, I guess where I was going with the when we got the external funding, we went through a process um, with a company called Healthbox. And they were kind of the incubator company that would help flesh out the idea and do the business case. They struggled with understanding that physicians would order care that didn't add value. They thought that that's, that, that didn't exist. Well, of course, the doctor ordered it. It must be the right thing. And the same kind of thing has occurred when I presented this just locally, our um, chamber of commerce, when we go out and present to the folks that run the banks and the businesses, and I show them this data, they're almost indignant that care can happen in a hospital it's not well thought of and doesn't leverage the entire team. They're like, wait, you have a nurse, a nurse leader, uh, RT, uh, a pharmacist, uh, social worker, physical therapist, occupation, and you're not in, you're not leveraging the entire team. You're simply relying on the physician to have the best ideas and not the nurse that's at the bedside 12 hours a day versus the physician that's in there for two minutes. That's silly. And I agree. And so that, you know, that's why my job's easy, because I leverage the entire team, have it be their idea almost every time, because they know more about the patient than often I do, because they're there. Now, I get to make the final decisions, and I always say, like, go back to the, the good to great, built to last idea. Uh, first, the who, then the what. Who's driving the bus? I am, because that's how healthcare is structured. You all are the ones driving the bus. But I have everybody sitting in the front seat with me, guiding us so that we get to the correct place. If we crash, I own it. When we get there and we celebrate victory, glory goes to the team. That's the window versus the mirror. Bad things happen, window. I look, I own it, I have accountability. I have to do, I have to talk to the family, I have to explain why things happened. But when great things happen, which is almost every time, glory goes to the team. And and you just get a rebel in the team loving what they do every day because they're gonna come back and do it again tomorrow. And so um, 
really, it has to be pull versus, versus push. You can't just push this out. Now, Arnie Milstein um, is a huge champion for this as well. He's out at Stanford. He's on the LeapFrog group. He wants this to be one of the next leaps because he's so he he totally buys this. And he's on the board at Big Inner Mountain as well, and he's he's seen the data. He knows this is the best way to practice, and he believes that any commercial payer should want the patients that are impaneled with them to experience this kind of care, and not care that doesn't add value. And so that he there's lots of you know sort of irons in the fire to help this happen. And I simply go where I'm called and um, talking with you all today. And hopefully we'll get invites out of this to go and help whoever whoever wants to do this work. I'm going to work with them. A lot of people don't want to do this type of work because they don't believe they have a problem. And at some point they're going to be structurally um, insolvent because they're doing care that doesn't add value and actually drives the cost up. And you can't keep doing that. And um, and patients shouldn't uh, should expect to not experience care that doesn't add value. You know, you, you talked about a lot of people think that they don't I'd like to ask ask this last question. They they don't think they have a problem. Did you guys have have issues that were going on at Intermountain that kind of motivated you guys to do this or drove this? Well, lo- locally, we just recognized um, or I my mindset coming in was we do lots of care that doesn't have value. And I started asking why. And one of the initial projects was. Um, having a, a peripheral IV infiltrate that had, I don't remember if it was like calcium or something, but we had some breakdown and we had cosmetic issues with that little one. And we asked the question, well, how often are we poking? And and you get the always and never answers. And I said, okay, we need data. And so started measuring that. And then we came up with a plan for how we were going to not let the number of pokes happen and what the process would be and how we would identify basically the decision tree and that that spawned the measure everything and continue to kind of grow from there and then ultimately the database and that kind of thing um and started basically un- saying okay this little one was born yesterday how many pokes do you think she experienced well i don't know 18 or 20 or something it was like 75 when we showed the real data and it was three or four painful if you include innovation and some other things and some of those can't be gotten rid of but then all these central line entries, a number of flushes, and he started tallying it and say, her first day experience was this. And this, these are all the risks that go along with it. Which of these can we eliminate? When folks start leaning into it and they start becoming part of the solution, and then you get to celebrate the outcome immediately because you see the numbers dropping off of the next baby. And then I would send out saying, just admitted this little man. We had a sister four years ago. This is what her first day looked like. This is what his first day looks like. And, and we would put it on the board and basically use visual management, but loving the team saying he got 12. That's about as low as you can get. And she had 75, you know, and basically you drive it that way. Um, the, the problem across the system is that other, other NICUs in our system still have collapsing. We're 3,000, almost 4,000 days since our last one. And, there, and there's, it's still a, a never event, but it's still happening. And it's, it's you, you basically get what you tolerate, you know. Um, and sure. we, don't, we don't tolerate that because our babies look at us. They trust us to only do what's right, you know. And I would say Macy's my little girlfriend, 23-week baby, um, who's on my front person on all the things. And you see her little hand holding my little finger. And she still calls me today and talks about um, homework and stuff. She's going on 13, 14 or something. She's a hoot. It's all cool. There's nothing weird going on. And her parents are involved. And, and they love and they, they evangelize poke as much as anything. And she wears one of my T-shirts and stuff. Um, that that um, all babies should experience that type of care, you know, and, and only get care that adds value because the outcomes matter so much. And adult patients, and if, it, if my mom, my dad, my brothers, they should only experience care that adds value. And just because it's Tuesday doesn't mean a lab should happen. It should only happen if it's going to add value. 
Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah, tell me about <laughs> Dr. it. Dr. Rideout, this has been fantastic. You, uh, I'm not sure if you have a background in coaching, but you remind me of my college uh, wrestling coach. I would, I think I would run through a brick wall for you. Oh, well, um, good. I, well, I, I am. Uh, like, you one. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I'd build it and run through it for you, my friend. I would have been well, so sure. encouraged and it's contagious, your passion. I can't thank you enough. I'm going to even right now on the podcast ask you to come back again well, in, sure. in the future. Uh, I'm so uh, excited about this podcast, about interviewing you and about just your your passion for improvement. So on that note, just on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, I just want to say a very big, hearty thank you, thank you, thank you so much, and keep on doing the great work that you're doing. Well, I'd love to come back and talk about servant leadership and how we deep value and deep respect and communication. SBAR is an amazing tool, you know, with A being the way we leverage the genius and how folks feel valued and, and recognized and go home. And this is, you know, if you have one more second. Sure. Bob Chapman, Barry Waymiller are talking about leadership as a stewardship of the precious lives you're blessed to lead. And we see that. And he just beautifully put it into words. We've been doing that for a decade plus here that that our number one uh, thing that we produce here are folks going home, knowing their opinions mattered. And that affects their lives at home, how they interact with their kids, how they interact with their husbands and wives. And, you know, Barry Waymiller makes big machines that make stuff like toilet paper and stuff, these massive machines that do those. But he always said that the number one thing he wanted to measure was the number of divorces happening across their enterprise. Because if they were loving their people, sending them home, fewer divorces would happen. They would just happen to make extraordinary machines that would make things. That's the same mindset we have here. We want people to come and go and so want to be here that the babies experience care that never harms them. But our families and stuff at home also enjoy the same thing. So I'd love to come back and talk about that because I think that that is the, 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 the way we get rid of burnout is folks coming and knowing they're valued and loved, that they have folks showing up to serve them and they go home each day knowing their opinions matter. Amen, brother. That's yes, so great. Thank you so much. Yeah. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. y'all. Happy Thanksgiving. You too. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Eric. Thanks, you guys.